How do we pick the best of the best? My colleagues, Parl Sagel, Greg Coles, and Jen Salai will join me to talk about our 10 best books of the year. It's also like deeply strange, a book that sort of really uh, does talk about the limits of grief and like the far reaches of what it means to be human when you fall in love with something so wild. What's in a beard, in a tie, a pleated trouser? Matthew Schneier will be here to talk about two new books of beards and men and true style. I would imagine that the kind of beard moment, the stubble moment, the outdoorsmanly moment is, is, he would say, a response to kind of the metrosexual moment that was five minutes ago. Why do we eat what we eat? B. Wilson will tell us about her latest book, First Bite, How We Learn to Eat. Children are powerless in so many ways, and one of the very few things that they have control over is the ability to refuse or accept food. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world, and Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. I am very excited to have here a big crew from the Book Review editorial team. We've got Carl Sagel. Hello. Hey, Pamela. The elusive Jen Salai. Hello. And Greg Coles. Hi, Pamela. And we are here to talk about the 10 best books of 2015. So let's do a quick rundown. Um, Parl, do you want to take us through fiction and then, Jen, nonfiction, just the titles and authors? Sure. In fiction, we have The Door by Magda Zabo, A Manual for Cleaning Women by Lucia Berlin, Outline by Rachel Cusk, The Sellout by Paul Beatty, The Story of the Lost Child by Lena Ferrante. And in nonfiction, Jen? In nonfiction, we have Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates, Empire of Cotton by Sven Beckert, H is for Hawk by Helen MacDonald, The Invention of Nature by Andrea Wolf, One of Us by Osney Seierstadt. Okay, so now we can discuss the debate and the discussion that went into this before talking about the books themselves. Um, this is a collaborative process, and uh, and before we end our little podcast session today, we'll also talk about our favorites that did not make the list, because everyone here I know is sort of quietly weeping over one of their... <laughs> loudly uh, weeping. Loudly, loudly weeping. weeping over a book that they really felt strongly about that didn't make it on. Um, so every each person here will get a chance to call out those books as well. Let's talk just a little bit in general about what's notable about this group as a whole. Looking especially at the fiction list, but a bit at the nonfiction too, um, I was struck by how alert all of these writers are to individual lives as a microcosm mm. of um, big kind of socio-political movements right. and, and pressures um, that they all in a, a again, uh, looking at the fiction list, especially really uh, represent individuals struggling to cope with big political power struggles. Yeah. What's an example of that? Uh, well, the Lucia Berlin, uh, which is a story collection, often feature characters like Lucia Berlin herself um, who are struggling financially and as single mothers. Um, so in a social structure where it's not easy uh, either to have no money or to be um, a single mother, a single parent. Um, but it, they're very feminist um, stories um, kind of looking at uh, the lack of opportunity for, for women in society. Yeah. So that's one example. And in the same way, the Ferrante, right? It's this tetralogy, right? A tetralogy, a tetra yes, for, for four for books. <laughs> and like, so people describe them as a story of like two good friends growing up. But it's also a book about the black market. 
You know, it's also a book about post-war Naples, but it's refracted through these particular lives and these particular choices. Very much. Yeah. And same with the Seierstad, too, which looks at, like, Breivik's mass killing, but it also looks at the sort of darker side of Scandinavia. It looks at the rise of the right wing, but it's through very, very particular individuals. It's interesting. We picked uh, one of us before the Paris attacks and before these most recent uh, mass shootings um, in the States. But the other thing I want to point out on the fiction list, again, just some broad sweeping things that uh, were not deliberate, but were noticeable to us once we made our choices that um, two of the women on the fiction side are no longer living, um, Lucia Berlin and Magda Sabo, that uh, I think there are how many books in translation here? Three. Three books in translation. Yeah. Three out of the 10, right. Yeah. I think that in 2013, only three out of 100 were translated. So that was, uh, that was a noticeable change. I think we calculated or someone calculated that 13% of the 100 were works in translation. But there are a couple of other interesting kind of common threads in the I, list. Again, looking at the fiction side, four of them very obviously are are by women, almost autobiographical uh, novels by women, although the Rachel Cusk outline, it's autobiographical in negative. The narrator is always deflecting any kind of autobiographical take. You you get uh, the narrator only in very small glimpses through her interactions with other people. It's about a writer uh, in Greece for a, a week or two teaching a writing workshop there, a British writer. Each chapter essentially um, is her interactions with a character that she meets along the way. Um, And she's really giving you those other characters' stories. But through that and through her takes on on those interactions, you're really getting her story. Um, So I would also call it an autobiographical novel. And Jen, that structure also occurs in Magda Sabo's The Door. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that book is uh, is structured? Yes. So it's about a relationship between a writer and um, her servant or housekeeper for many years uh, who served her for, I think, about two decades. It's mentioned in the book. And you get a sense of the writer, but only as it's reflected in her relationship with her servant named Emerence. And their relationship itself Many people talk about the relationship between the two women and the Ferrante. The relationship in Sabo's book also is extremely complicated. You know, at first it sort of begins that the main character, the writer, doesn't seem to really understand the housekeeper. And then she begins to know her. But again, there's something that's always mysterious about her and somewhat inexplicable. It's such a great book. It's, yeah. uh, And I think, you know, for, for those wary of reading a book that was published in the 80s in um, a communist Hungary um, <laughs> and only appearing now, that that sort of sounds uh, daunting and, and at far removed. But it's really... It felt very contemporary. It does. It is only appearing now, but it it was published by a small academic publisher in America in 1997, and now it's been reissued by New York Review Classics. And some books just find their moment. I think the Sabo, in some ways, its parallels with Ferrante um, Mm -hmm. make this kind of a a cultural moment that finally we could recognize a book that has actually been available um, here before but went really unnoticed. And also, I mean, looking at the fiction list, the Paul Beattie book, which is satire, maybe stands apart in this respect, but it looks like, you know, the four other books are very much psychological in nature. And Um, lives of women. And the lives of women. It's the Bechdel test. (laughs) Right, exactly. They're they're all about relationships. (laughs) Right. But but what's interesting is the conversations and the relationships are about women in a non-romantic context. That's right. 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 
I think um, the other thing that's interesting the, that even though the sellout um, might appear to be a kind of outlier on the fiction side, um, that there are four books on this list that deal explicitly with race. Um, the sellout uh, right. by Paul Beatty, which is um, a satire in which a young man uh, tries to segregate his local school and reinstate slavery um, in his home. As you do. As one does, <laughs> yes. Um, and then Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. I think many people are already familiar with this book, but this is a kind of, it's written in the form of a letter to his teenage son about um, race in America and, and how it's lived. Empire of Cotton, A Global History by Sven Beckert is a book about industrialization and about capitalism and about globalization of capitalism. But it's also, of course, given that that cotton is the crop in question mm-hmm. about slavery um, in many ways. And then finally, One of Us, the story of Anders Breivik and the massacre in Norway by Osni Seierstad is about the uh, murderer, Anders Breivik, who uh, was angry about a lot of things, um, but one of those was uh, cultural diversity. And immigration, yeah. Did you have a favorite on the list, Paul? I think I did. I think I, I proselytize for H is for Hawk. If you know me, you've probably gotten a copy of this book <laughs> this year. Um, so H is for Hawk is a memoir by Helen MacDonald, who is a historian, um, a poet, and she was sort of like an amateur falconer. And after the death of her father, she embarked on a very strange, you know, route to solace and comfort. And she barricaded herself in this small cottage and decided to raise a goshawk. And a goshawk is a particularly, it's like the pit bull of hawks. It's, You've got to YouTube this hawk, by the way. It's, it's insane. It's, it's a very angry bully of a bird. And it's very big and it's very bloody. So she she adopts this tiny goshawk who she names Mabel after Amabilis, the Latin to, of beloved. And uh, they just live in this house, the two of them. And The book becomes a ghost story. She's haunted by the death of her father, but it's also a love story. She falls in love with this tiny little being. And some of the most beautiful prose this year, I think, is in this book where she just describes the sort of life that they live where they're so close, just the two of them. She can smell Mabel's peppery little breath. She can hear Mabel's um, Mabel shuffling her wings like a, a peck of cards being shuffled. Like, it's just beautiful prose and... A book that's also like deeply strange, a book that sort of really uh, does talk about the limits of grief and like the far reaches of what it means to be human when you fall in love with something so wild. I have to say also that it's just fascinating to figure out, like, how does one train a, a bird Lots like of that? Yes. It's funny. I, I read yeah. that book uh, just after we had gotten our puppy. And so we were in the <laughs> midst of dog training as I was reading about goshawk training. And it, it made me feel a lot better. <laughs> I, I thought, well, if she could do that. I can do this. <laughs> All right, Jen, what's your favorite on the list? I have to say that uh, I would pick the Saba book. Um, reading it was sort of revelatory for me. I felt like it was the kind of novel that I think, as our reviewer pointed out, not much actually happens in the conventional sense of plot. But at the same time, everything happens. Yes, I, I feel like a lot happens. <laughs> a lot happens. Book. But it's hard to sort of distill it to, okay, this book is about such and such, other than this is a book about a relationship between these two women. And also, um, not only that, but against their relationship as the backdrop of Hungarian history, which is, you know, the history of a small country, but at the same time, it was at the center of so many things that were going on in the 20th century. But again, so that we don't 
ward off any wary readers. You really right. don't have to know anything about, about Hungary to read this. You don't mm-hmm. have to know anything at all. What I found, one of the things I found so interesting about that book, um, I mean, many, many things, but there's an economic relationship between these two women, but there's also a much deeper um, friendship and really kind of quasi-familial um, relationship between them. And it really explores the differences in those kinds of relationships and the tensions when you have both in the same pairing um, at once. Definitely. And and also, you know, ultimately at the end, there is a sense of, you know, the question becomes, what does it mean, at least for me when I'm reading it, um, what does it mean to save somebody? And also, what does it mean to betray them? Because in this book, the two are really connected. Yes. And, you know, at some point, the narrator says, in order to save Emirates, she had to betray her in some way. And you sort of see how that plays out in a in a truly devastating way. All right, we will leave it there. Greg, what's your favorite? I have to say right now, I am just head over heels in love with the Ferrante novels. They are, maybe unlike the Sabo, uh, filled with very conventional um, plot in in a headlong way. There are affairs, there are murders, there are, um, you know, there's uh, political ambition and and, uh, individual ambition. Within all of that, she takes just such a wide angle um, through the course of the four books. Um, it, it's been interesting to see where they turn from the individual to the political as as the characters grow up and become more aware of kind of the big structures that are imposed on them and um, try sometimes in vain and sometimes successfully to escape them. But even when they think they've successfully escaped them uh, to see how they're really operating within the strictures of, of the structure that's imposed on them. I mean, in many ways, I, they are just about the relationship be, between these two women and how uh, one is confined to the neighborhood her whole life and one seems to get out um, but is not able to shake it. Um, in, in some ways, they remind me of kind of traditional immigrant literature, um, the struggle to escape your roots. But in other ways, they're just these big um, social novels. So. I'm glad to hear you talk about it in this way, because I think that this is the kind of book that, that someone might read about from from afar and think, oh, this is a, a woman-y book about French right. friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it, there is, especially the first one, My Brilliant Friend, um, I, I finished it. I, I was avid for that book as well. Um, but I I finished it and I thought th- this is like an Italian version of Alice Munro. And I should say I love Alice Munro, but it is there is something very kind of uh, traditional women's literature in that book, especially. Um, but they become increasingly kind of sweeping and and big social novels. Mm-hmm. Before uh, we go, one last question for everyone, which is again about the book that you wish had been on the list, because I know that um, everyone here had strong feelings about a favorite that didn't make it. Do you want to start, Jen? So the book that I was hoping would be on the list uh, was The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson, which I thought... You reviewed. Which yeah. I did review. And, um, you know, it's a very short book. It might be 150 pages, but it contains so much within it. It's hard to describe. It's broken up into, you know, vignettes or discrete paragraphs. And it's sort of a combination of memoir and essay and meditation on motherhood, having a child. Also, Nelson herself got married to her partner, Harry Dodge, who at the time that Nelson was pregnant. Dodge was taking testosterone shots and getting top surgery. And so she writes about their changing bodies and how much is limited by 
one's physical self, but also how much isn't limited by one's physical self. And it's just a really amazing, incredible book. I was a big advocate for Lauren Groff's Fates and Furies this year, um, a, a book that in in some ways, you know, it ha- has echoes of Gone Girl in it. It's the story of a marriage. And the first half of it is told from the husband's perspective. And he, he's fairly complacent. Good things have come to him his whole life. And then it breaks in the middle and you get the wife's perspective after that. And she is far from complacent. She's a very active and very angry character. Um, it doesn't have psychopathy and murder <laughs> that uh, Gone Girl has in it. But it's the shifting narrative was so well done. <laughs> it becomes a way to examine marriage and how you you never really know the person that you're married to. She turns the dial on that all the way up. It's almost like two different books, two different voices. Um, and she started it off actually as two different books, right, and, almost and like a Mr. Bridge yes. and Mrs. Bridge kind of thing, which which does the same thing. If you read Mr. Bridge and Mrs. Bridge, you see this is a marriage where they are living completely different lives. And, um, it, Only you Fates, to be united in cinema. <laughs> <laughs> right. In, uh, in Fates and Furies, it's, it's not so much two different lives. It's that Lotto, the, the husband, doesn't realize quite how uh, involved in the marriage and, and their lives, Mathilde, the wife, has been at making things happen in the course. And it, it turns quite Baroque and, and Gothic in, in the writing in the second half. Uh, it reminded some people of the Goldfinch uh, in its plottiness. You know, I, I think there Lauren, was a painting <laughs> in both. I, I think Lauren Groff is a terrific prose stylist. I, I just I love reading her sentences. And again, um, the voice changes very much from the first half to the second half. But the the prose, uh, even as it changes voice, um, you know, she she just nails sentence after sentence, like like Helen McDonald does in H's mm-hmm. for Hawk. Mm-hmm. The the prose is pretty much flawless. Um, and so I thought Fates and Furies was a very clever, very enjoyable and accessible look at marriage. So, yeah. And Pearl? I have two. One is the Eka Korniawan. He's an Indonesian novelist. His book, Beauty is a Wound, which is impossible to describe, save to say it has the best first page. I think the best first paragraph. There's no way to, to read that and not keep reading. But I'm also kind of increasingly haunted by another book, which I didn't really push for, but I now wish I kind of had. Um, and it's on our notable list, and it's Negro Land by Margot Jefferson, the critic. And... It's a memoir um, about growing up black in the 50s, but also rather wealthy and what that feels like. It was reviewed for us by Tracy K. Smith, who wrote a beautiful review, sort of highlighting what Jefferson sort of talks about in her youth, which was the immense pressure to be a credit to one's race, to never seem to to break, to never be depressed, to never be anxious. Um, and it's, it's just beautiful and it's searching and epigrammatic and... Um, and very, very dark. You know, she talks about her own attraction to suicide, her own years of depression, but then can also switch and be this incredibly joyful, light, and sort of really dexterous book about cultural criticism. What about you, Pamela? So my runner-up, I think, uh, one book I really admired this year was Mark Van Honecker's uh, book, Skyfaring. Um, he's a pilot, and he writes about uh, the beauty and the joy and mystery of flight. And I think as someone who... Um, hates just the whole business of waiting to be in economy group four. Everything about it, it, it was an amaz- amazing experience to sort of um, reconsider the magic, the magic <laughs> yes, the, the upside of being up in the air. Um, and then on the list, um, I think my favorite is probably Rachel Cusk's novel, Outline. Um, it's one of those books that you just read in every sentence. You just, I, I stop and pause and it just 
gasp at the genius of this writer. Um, I think she's so completely brilliant. Um, if I had to compare it to a book of last year's list, it would be Jenny Ophel's uh, Department of Speculation. It's just looking at it from outside, you might think it looks slight or um, narrow, but it's so well honed and enjoyable and accessible that I just want everyone to read this book. Interesting to note uh, in passing that Rachel Cusk reviewed the Elena Ferrante, uh, the fourth book for us. Bringing it all together. <laughs> Greg Coles. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Thank you. Pamela. Alexandra Alter joins us now for Notes from the Literary World. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. So we've got bad sex and good books on yes. the agenda. Okay. Let's start with Sometimes the sex. Sometimes bad sex in good books. Okay. So as you probably know, the Literary Review, which is a British um, literary magazine, has been giving out a special award since 1993. And this is the one award that writers really don't want to get or even be nominated for. It's the Bad Sex in Fiction Award. And the finalists this year actually included some fantastic writers and some great books. They were just being called out for either sex that looked unpleasant or was poorly described. Um, so the finalists included George Pelicanos, Joshua Cohen for the Book of Numbers, Erica Young for Fear of Dying, um, which I thought was, you know, there's a lot of sex in that book amongst older people. So I seemed like an easy target. Lauren Groff for Fates and Furies and Morrissey for his novel, which got some tough reviews. Don't leave us in suspense. All right. So the the award was handed out this Tuesday, and it went to Morrissey for his novel, The List of the Lost. It actually had one of the passages that was printable compared to the others, if you would like to hear. We would all like to hear this bad course. sex all writing. Right. Eliza and Ezra rolled together into the one giggling snowball of full-figured copulation, screaming and shouting as they playfully bit and pulled at each other in a dangerous and clamorous roller coaster coil of sexually violent rotation. It continues. Well, let listeners decide. <laughs> <laughs> Do they miss any nominees that you can think of? That's a very good question. You're too nice to say. I don't want to call anybody out. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about some some good books with good sex or no sex um, in them and turn to our notable books of 2015. Yes. I'm curious, as I'm sure a lot of listeners are, how you compile the list of 100 notable books of 2015. It sounds you know, like a lot of books to highlight, but as you and I both know from receiving endless packages all day long, you know, there's tens of thousands of books that come out every year, so 100 is actually fairly small. How did you narrow it down? How did you and your editors decide what deserved noting this year? I'm glad that you made that point, um, that it's not actually easy to pick 100. It seems like a big number. But then you divide it into 50 fiction and poetry and then 50 nonfiction. And you think about it in terms of what we've covered in the book review. If we were to include every cover review, now, not every week we have one one book on the cover. Sometimes it's more than that. You're already at 52. You're already wow. at about roughly half. And then there are so many worthy books that are, of course, reviewed within the pages of the book review. So it is a really tough process. Um, we generally start by looking at our editor's choices. Um, every week, uh, as readers know, we choose books that we editors think are books of distinction from the book review of the previous week. They're not always books that get positive reviews in the book review because, as you know, our reviewers may write negative reviews of books that we, the editors, liked 
quite a lot. Um, so this is our way of kind of overturning. And weighing in yourselves. That's yes, nice. their yeah. verdict. And so we look at our editor's choices from the entire year, um, which again, does not narrow it down all that much. And then we make sure that there are books that weren't necessarily editor's choices, but that some of us would have liked to have been on the editor's choice, but we didn't even have space to get them in there. Oh, wow. So we add to that list before we start narrowing it down. Um, and we look at all of the books that we have reviewed since the last 100 Notable Books. It's not quite a calendar year um, because there are some books that came out at the end of December that we didn't review until after we chose our 100 Notables of the previous year. One of the examples off the top of my head is Empire of Cotton by um, uh-huh. Sven Beckard, um, which was published in late 2014 and reviewed for us um, around that time, but after the last choice. Once you have narrowed it down somewhat and you're trying to pick, you know, you're getting down to the nitty gritty, is it a vote? Do you have final say because you're the top editor? How does it work? I'd like to have consensus. Um, so it does ultimately um, come down to me, but I do that by constantly working together with our editors. Um, and they all know um, that it, it's really a collaborative process and that um, when they do feel strongly, when someone feels strongly about a book, we try to really get it in there. Um, but again, it, it, there's a lot of narrowing down that has to happen. And um, I think everyone has their own little, you know, private unhappiness, sure. something <laughs> that, that got cut unwillingly. Maybe you could expand it next year. One thing that I saw a lot of people uh, praising after the list was released on Twitter and elsewhere was just the number of books in translation. That's definitely a neglected kind of corner of the literary world. And I think people are really happy to see um, the book review highlighting a lot of those books. Well, I think that that's probably a reflection of the newspaper as a whole going from, you know, a metropolitan paper way back when to a national paper and now really a global newspaper. And in the age of the Internet, um, we really are reaching a global audience. And the same thing holds for the book review. The books that we are looking at and the books that um, we consider um, often to be the most notable tend to come from, you know, further reaches of the world than they used to. I also think, and I don't know the numbers on this, but it does seem to me that there is more work in translation being published in the States. Maybe that's a story for you to I'm gonna look into to it. look into. But um, there are a number of small presses that are devoted exclusively to work in translation or work from abroad in general, and then more established houses that just seem to be doing it more frequently. I hope that that is a sign that readers in America are more interested in and open to hearing voices from abroad. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you look at some of even the most popular books of recent times, there's Elena Ferrante and Knausgaard. And so I think that will alone will encourage more publishers to look at works in translation. Yeah, I remember about 10 years ago, actually, it wasn't even 10 years ago, maybe eight years ago, an editor told me that um, it was kind of a known thing in publishing that if an author had um, an Asian name, a Chinese name, you know, that wasn't hadn't been Americanized, that it was notably more difficult for those books to get published and to sell. Um, wow. You know, simply, we can think of many reasons why that might be, but even just the simple one of sort of pronunciation um, and familiarity. And I don't know if that's any longer the case. I think there's so many exceptions now to that, that I'm hoping that that's changing. Yeah. Well, it's a great list, and it's interesting to hear how it's put together. All right. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks, Pamela. For interviewing me. (laughs) 
Matthew Schneier joins us now. He is a reporter for the Styles Desk here at The Times, and he reviews this week two books of Beards and Men, The Revealing History of Facial Hair by Christopher Oldstone Moore. Sounds like a very appropriate name for that title. Seems right. And True Style, The History and Principles of Classic Menswear by G. Bruce Boyer. Hi, Matthew. Hi, thanks for having me. These two books, uh, very different. Let's talk first about beards. Um, you open your review with this great anecdote about Abe Lincoln. Can you retell it? So Abe Lincoln, now famously bearded, did not always have a beard. And during the campaign for president, uh, he got a letter from an 11-year-old girl in New York who wrote to him to say that uh, she really felt that he was going to capture the female vote. Well, not the female vote because women couldn't vote at the time, but that women would tease their husbands, would would sort of hawk their husbands, as my mother would say, to vote for Lincoln uh, if he had whiskers, because women like whiskers. And she could definitely sway the the votes of her brothers, the ones who weren't voting for him, if he grew out his, his beard. Lincoln actually did. He did. And, and he didn't. I'm not sure that he did it in time for the election, but but he certainly took uh, her words to heart. And when he was passing through town on this sort of rail tour on the way to the White House, he made a point to see her. He called her up um, from the back of a, you know, a crowd that had gathered to see him. And, and he let her know that that he had taken her words to heart and, and that, you know, he had this beard. And there's actually a statue now, a bronze statue of the two of them uh, in this New York town where she was from, where they met, of the two of them meeting and, and a splendidly bearded Lincoln. Attention, uh, uh, Doris Cairns Goodwin. This is actually why Lincoln was such a, such a success. It was because of this 11-year-old Naomi Wolf of her time advising the presidential candidate on his look. And it sounds like she really uh, dined out on this story for the rest of her life. I mean, there's, you know, this is a moment that's been celebrated in in the sort of minor arcana of government. This was her moment. So the story that is told in this book is the story of beards. Does it go through? I mean, where does it start? How, where does it end? How does it organize itself? This is really uh, beards throughout just about all of human history. I mean, it's, it was actually uh, astonishing to me how far back uh, Old Stone Moore goes. And I mean, basically from Sumerian beards up to beards in the present day with meaningful stops in uh, ancient Egypt, Mesopotamia, ancient Rome, classical Greece. Through the Middle Ages, the rise of Christianity, you know, at one point Jesus is... it is, the Western beard or...? It's very much the Western beard, which I think is one of the limitations of the book and, and one that uh, that the author acknowledges. It doesn't actually touch on um, beards in, in the East uh, where, where there were some beards, some mustaches, some some all of this stuff. And, you know, who knows? Maybe that'll be volume two. Uh, but for, for beards in the West, he going absolutely uh, soup to nuts. I thought that maybe mustaches uh, would be the sequel to this book. Or does he take into account mustaches as well. Here. We, we get into some mustaches because, you know, mustaches connect to some beards and sometimes there's beardlessness but not mustachelessness. Uh, you know, it, it, this, this is very much a book that's wondering, you know, why things are there when they're there and why things aren't there when they're not there. And any sort of version of hairiness of a man's face or a woman's face, actually, he can try to make sort of semiotically relevant as, as a point of beardedness. Does he have a sort of grand arching theory of, you know, like, do, is it during moments of recession, beards flow or the opposite? Or It's a little bit of a kind of, it's very much that beards are always responding to the kind of idea of masculinity in their given day. And, and that this sort of flip-flops through history. So you've got, you know, certain Greek conquerors or, or um, you know, classical conquerors who had always been bearded, suddenly one goes beardless to ally himself with 
gods and suggests that he is part divine. And this starts a, a kind of craze for clean shavenness. And then that endures until the philosopher kings or something come back. And, you know, they think beards make them look uh, intelligent and thoughtful and whatever. And it aligns with various schools of philosophy. And so they bring it back. The church historically goes back and forth on whether priests should be bearded or unbearded. Um, you know, the overarching argument is really that beardedness is significant. It's never an accident. It's always something that is cultivated, um, you know, and, and whether it's specifically discussed or written about, as it often has been, you know, that, that it always is making some kind of claim about what is the appropriate sort of role of, of man and, and role of masculinity. Let's talk about political beards for a minute because we are in an interminable election uh, season. Um, but if I'm picturing them correctly, and it's hard to remember who's in the race and not in the race at any given moment, I don't think any of the candidates are currently bearded. Carson. Carson Carson's has a beard. Got a, what does it mean? He's got a goatee. Um, <laughs> I, I think we'd have to call it right, or, or at least has on some someone fact checks. That's this, right? true. But, okay. Um, he he does, and and it's it's very relevant because there's a, another great uh, anecdote that was new to me from the book um, Dewey, the great uh, Dewey versus Truman, the the two time loser. It turns out of the presidency. Uh, later in his life in the 50s at some point says, you know, he's giving a talk to a group of Boy Scouts and says, you know, remember, kids, anyone can become president unless they have a mustache. Uh, or perhaps a go-to. So you're making add. a prediction here? I, I am not making a prediction. I am not a politics reporter. Uh, I, I am merely an aghast observer. But um, it, it is very possible that someone right now is focus grouping the effect of, uh, of Carson's goatee and, and maybe uh, lobbying him to change it. Beards have been in the news recently. There was the, was it the retirement beard mm -hmm. the, with Dave Letterman um, growing these like very, very, very full throttle beards. I don't even know what the, what's the technical term for that massive. They're sometimes called beavers, you know, which which takes us into a strange other territory. But, uh, you know, that, that big kind of outdoorsmanly beard and, you know, young people grow them too now. There, there's a lumber sexual movement. That's right. Uh, accord, what does it say some? about our current sort of, you said earlier that it has to do with notions of manhood. I mean, what, what do these beards say or what would Old Stone Moore say these beards say about where we are now. Well, uh, you know, I, th I think Ultramar has left himself a little room to uh, to do a fuller kind of examination of the present day. You know, w one of the things I found about the book is that he's on a little bit firmer ground going through history than uh, than he gives to the present. But I would imagine that the kind of beard moment, the stubble moment, the outdoorsmanly moment is, is, he would say, a response to kind of the metrosexual moment that was five minutes ago. Uh, you know, th this kind of constant negotiation between trends is, is very much the, the kind of thing that he's examining and, and sort of drawing through the entire book. I have to remark here before we turn to the other book, True Style, since you are here in the studio, that you have a bit of a beard yourself. <laughs> so um, I don't know if you have any, have gleaned any insight into your own beardedness from this book. You know, I, I was thinking today that I was wondering whether I should shave before coming here. And I, I sad to say, woke up too late. And so it wasn't actually a decided decision so much as a happenstance. I have come to think that though I do not often examine my own beard, it, it is not for me something that I take particular pride in or, or think very much about or, or even something that stays regularly the same length or, you know, or anything like that, that I must be significant. And I, I should investigate what that means. You know, there, there is a bit in the book about um, the, the kind of evolutionary psychology of beards and, and what beards mean in terms of mate selection and, and attraction and, you know, how women respond to beards, how men respond to beards, intimidation, mate, all, all of this stuff. 
And there's some studies, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, that suggest that uh, stubble, like I, I'm currently wearing, is uh, is kind of the best of both worlds. That it suggests the virility of beardedness, but also the the kind of kempt quality of uh, you know of a man of refinement. So maybe I'm hoping to hit that perfect medium. Well, we wouldn't expect any less from a Styles reporter <laughs> at the Times. Let's turn to the other book, True Style: The History and Principles of Classic Menswear. Um, this book is organized, it seems, into um, categories of dress, um, some of them very specific, some more general. He has a chapter called Italian style and one called Ivy style, but then he has opens with a chapter on ascots. What is there to say about ascots? You know, if you are a an appreciator, shall we say, uh, of, of classic menswear, of traditional menswear stretching back uh, centuries, and, and, and Bruce Boyer, the, the author of this book, you know, takes a very long historical view, as does Christopher Oldstone Moore. You know, there, there is a lot to say about ascots. They're, um, they've evolved. They were once absolutely de rigueur. They're now much less so, although they have um, kind of relatives in, in the cravat and the necktie. And Boyer is very much interested in kind of the original rules of men's style and, and how they apply or don't apply and, and whether they should apply today. And, and he tends to take a, a relatively conservative position, I think, um, in, in arguing that they have a real strength now and that their, I don't want to say abandonment, but the evolution away from them uh, is, is in some way misguided. And, you know, I, I think that's a provocative argument. I'm not sure I entirely agree. I, I think fashion pieces of clothing evolve as the times evolve. But for someone who is very well steeped in the history of, uh, of ascots and dressing gowns and, you know, all, all of the kind of historical moments of, uh, of sartorial significance, uh, Boyer is a salty guide. Well, he's, he's a very dapper-looking fellow, judging from his jacket photograph. Uh, I see he is a former menswear editor of Town & Country. He's also wearing a pocket square in the photo, but he doesn't have a chapter devoted to it. Does he have anything to say about these pocket squares? I think he does work it in uh, in, in some other chapter. I, I would have to uh, go back through my notes to find exactly what he has to say on the subject. But uh, you know, that that is the kind of sartorial flourish that, that he tends to advocate for. It's classic, but it can also be quite debonair, quite dashing. You know, his sort of icons, his pantheon of men's style includes people like Cary Grant and, and the Duke of Windsor. You know, he is not agitating for a, a pared back or, right. or recessive take on men's style. But these are not exactly contemporary figures to look to for fashion inspiration. They're not. And, and I have to give him credit where credit is due. You know, he, he does uh, trace their influence to, to Latter-day people. I think Sean Combs, Puff Daddy, whatever we call him these days, Diddy, Daddy, whoever. There are definitely contemporary figures, but he, he certainly casts a very glowing light back on, on the kind of nearish past. So is this more of a history than a how-to? It's kind of pensées. Um, it's, it's meditations on the subject. Uh, I think that kind of explains the slightly strange uh, structure of the book, which are short essays on, uh, on various subjects. Uh, I think a lot of them, or some of them at least, grew out of uh, online writing that he'd been doing for some men's style websites. It is historically informed instruction delivered uh, sternly. All right. Well, then I would like to know what his pensées are, his instructions are with regard to dressing gowns, which I it seemed to me extinct, but perhaps I'm wrong. You know, they're certainly extinct in my apartment, but like many things that, that have gone away and, and seem to be extinct, they, they may have a, another life to come. He, he is clear that you can still get them. Uh, I believe he recommends Charvet, the great... Uh, Paris shirt maker, and uh, you know they're they're right there on Place Vendome. If anybody wants to go out there, 
I don't think that they are going to be embraced en masse by the, the gentlemanly population. But if you want to feel stylish and chic as you pat around your apartment going for <laughs> a midnight glass of water or a snack or something, you know, but I think part of his point is that, you know, you, you kind of live the life you dress for right. um, or, or to dress for the life you want. And, and you know, if, if you think of yourself as, as a Cary Grantish, Clark Gableish fellow, then sure, head over to Charvet, throw in a uh, dressing gown. What was the most interesting thing you learned from this book? You know, I, I hope this isn't a cop-out, but what I was most interested in uh, in the book was how strongly Boyer actually feels about every individual piece that he writes about, about his own edicts, about the history and practice of, of these subjects. I mean, it's filled with strange little facts about this one took hours and hours tying his cravats all morning or, or his foulards all morning. And, you know, this one wore an open collar shirt, which was, you know, the sort of height of uh, English romantic sexiness. But uh, more than any individual fact, it, it was it, the through line is kind of Boyer himself as a kind of natty professor. And whether you agree with him or don't, and, and I think there are plenty of places where I don't. Uh, Did you sharply differ over ascots? You know, I'm not wearing an ascot today, so <laughs> I, I think we can probably uh, read something into that, although I am wearing this sort of like... <laughs> rough-collared uh, <laughs> turtleneck. You know, I, I think it's good to have strong disagreements about menswear because menswear is something that uh, many people feel, many men feel, I think, is, is below consideration. They, they dress to kind of not stand out. And, and Boyer is an absolutely an advocate of, uh, of standing out in the right way. And so whether I agree on any particular or not, I, I salute him for that. Was it always that way? No, not at all. I mean, at, at different points in history, um, there, there was very different emphasis placed on, um, on on men's style. And certainly if you look back to, you know, say the 18th century, it was a, it was a great age of refinement. Uh, you have incredibly involved portraits being painted with men in certain garb that was meant to telegraph their status, their station, um, their families, their crests, all, all of these kind of things. And, uh, you know, there, there are certainly class issues in play there. You're not going to have a lot of... Um, Farmers paying, you know, incredible attention to their uh, ermines and stoles the way that uh, monarchs will. You know, li like all things, the, the trend goes and the trend comes. I think we're, we're actually, again, entering a new moment where, where it's permissible for men to be very interested in what they're wearing, whether or not they always admit it. We have a new monthly men's style supplement we, section. We the sure do. I'm, I'm very proud to work on it. So, uh, so that's a little bit of a plug for myself. But I, I think that came about, you know, for many reasons, but, but one of them being that you know, the, these are issues that people are starting to talk about again, and, and happily so. All right. Well, those who care, um, <laughs> the growing numbers, the books again are True Style, The History and Principles of Classic Menswear and of Beards and Men, The Revealing History of Facial Hair by Christopher Oldstone Moore. Both of them reviewed by Matthew Schneier. Matthew, thank you so much. Thank you. Wilson joins us now from Cambridge, England. She is the author of Consider the Fork, and her new book is called First Bite, How We Learn to Eat. Hi, Bea. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Tell me how you got from fork to first bite. It feels like we're going backwards a little bit. So actually, this book was in my mind for a lot longer than the fork one. I am a journalist as well as writing books, and I used to write a lot about school food. And I had at the back of my mind for the longest time that I would write something about children's food and why we have all these strange attitudes to feeding children and how emotional it is. But then when I got into thinking about it some more, I 
kept coming back to this thought that maybe we're all a bit like children still in the way that we eat. And then when I started delving into the research, that seemed to be confirmed by all sorts of things ranging from sort of history of different food cultures to neuroscience to psychology. And it changed into a completely different book. Well, I'm going to pepper you with a few culturally based questions that um, reflect uh, American eating habits and also what American parents hear about food. So first off, um, there's been a recent sort of spate of books telling us that our kids should eat Frenchly, that French children eat everything um, and Americans don't. Did you look into how culture affects what we eat and uh, are the French feeding their children better? I don't think the French are exempt from these problems. I have read some of those books, and I know that parenting is one of your great subjects. I did look into different cultures, and I think it hugely affects the way that we eat within families. Um, I looked at Japan, for example. Um, so often we look at Japan and think it, it's as a country has this enviable relationship with food. It's one of the very few countries in the world, South Korea being another, to have low obesity levels without also having famine and to have a really pleasurable relationship with food. Food is a national obsession. Songs are sung to Raymond Noodles. There are theme parks devoted to sushi. And we somehow imagine in a somewhat essentialist way that there's something within the Japanese spirit that makes meat in this way and that we in the UK or in the US could never eat like that. But then when you look at the details, you find that the Japanese have only eaten the way they do for a very short period of time, essentially in the post-war years. And it was a product of a series of economic and social circumstances that led them to eat like that. It was post-war prosperity and recipe columns appearing for the first time. And it was also the American post-war lunch program, which meant that Japanese children were encountering strange foods and having to dare themselves to put things like white sliced bread in their mouths or curry powder. And I think so often we think that there's some essentialist element to a food culture. Oh, the French eat so well because they're French or we can't eat well because we're Anglo-Saxons and we somehow have these mixed up attitudes to do with guilt. And that's partially true. Um, but I think we ignore the extent to which diets change. Your subtitle is How We Learn to Eat. And your, I think your central argument or one of them is that eating is a learned behavior. But what exactly does that mean? At a sort of basic level, it's stating the obvious, which is that as omnivores, we have to learn how to eat. We're not born with some innate instinct as anteaters are, what our diet should consist of, because in different places in the world, we have to somehow form a nutritious diet out of whatever is available. Um, but I think we've somehow forgotten that basic truth. But over and above that, the sort of basic fact of us being omnivores, um, a lot of really interesting experiments have been done um, by psychologists and others, showing that our tastes are to a very large extent a product of memory. So even babies are born with memories of their mother's diet. There was an experiment done where pregnant women drank a lot of carrot juice and then the babies turn out to prefer carrots. And another one done in France where the mothers ate a lot of aniseed-based sweets and again, the babies loved aniseed. So we learn to eat largely through the foods that we're exposed to but only when we're exposed to food in a positive way. So part of our problem with eating is that so often, both for ourselves and for children, we say, oh, I ought to eat more vegetables. I should have 
five a day fruit and vegetables. But what I really love is chocolate or ribs or burgers or fries or whatever it might be. And as soon as we create that opposition between what we ought to eat and what we want to eat, then it's going to be very hard for us to eat well. But at the same time, we read about so many studies, and maybe they're poorly done studies, they're inaccurate, but studies that we are learn say that human beings, and especially babies and children, are predisposed to like sweet food. Yes, that's absolutely true. This, this is not um, a fallacy. We're all born with an innate love of sweetness. It's a universal human phenomenon. And we're all born with a slight aversion to bitterness, which was probably originally a kind of evolutionary protection mechanism because in the wild, many toxins are bitter. However, the evidence shows that you can overcome this initial preference um, to a huge extent based on environment. And we forget that sweetness doesn't take just one form. Something like a caramelized head of fennel can be incredibly sweet once you've developed a taste for it. And equally, we know that lots of people come to adore foods such as kale, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, bitterness or not. The world's two most popular beverages are coffee and beer, which suggests that however innate our initial repulsion for bitterness might be, it's perfectly possible to undergo a shift. The question is what it would take to undergo, I mean, the term used is hedonic shift, to loving a well-balanced diet of wholesome home-cooked food. And that's the real struggle for lots of us. Although I have to wonder with coffee or beer if it's just that we either want to wake up or, or get drunk. Um, I think that it... Something called, absolutely, there's something, post-ingestive consequences is the phrase that would be used technically in the literature. Clearly, beer is doing something for us that the Brussels sprouts aren't. Right. But every any parent um, who has sort of tried to, you know, bought the little jars of food, or if they're a better parent than me, you know, used a home blender and ground fresh vegetables or whatever else, um, has found that when you when you do try to give small children, babies, um, that spinach and the or peas, that they'll spit it out. And we're told, well, you have to do it, I think 12 is the magic number or 16 times before the child will start eating it. Is that Does the research bear that out? The research does bear this out to some extent, although some interesting things happen. Some more recent research has shown once you've managed to do this successfully with a few foods, you then get into a virtuous circle. So it might only take three or four times. It also varies hugely from child to child. Some children might take 20 times. But I think the real secret that we often don't say is, you know, we've all read that stuff saying we should do it 14 times, but it's so demoralizing. I know I've made this mistake myself. You do it kind of three times and think, oh, I can't face throwing this food away yet again or having it spat in my face. Or It's really upsetting having food rejected. So we probably give up and think, well, they're just never going to be a broccoli eater. Um, and I wish that when my children had been tiny, I had known about these new techniques, which have been developed just in the last 10 years by psychologists and have proved remarkably effective, even with really resistant eaters on the autistic spectrum, which is making the food that you taste as small as a pea or the size of a grain of rice even. And at that point, it just removes all of the pressure from the child. Almost anyone can put something that small in their mouth and then leave it at that. Don't attempt to get them to eat a whole plate of broccoli in one go. And you, how long do you do that for? You do that again for 14 successive days. 
But what I found doing it with the fussiest eater in our house was that by about day three, he'd be saying, I can't really taste this. Can I have it a bit bigger, please? And he would just be begging for it larger. And at that point, well, you've already won. And then you move on to the next food. You did uh, looked at research, um, some really interesting research on autistic children and children who, for various developmental reasons, might be might have extreme food aversions. What did you find? I found, I mean, firstly, it's a very common problem. One of the directors of a feeding clinic that I interviewed said he felt that there was a spectrum. And although the cases that he saw were the extreme ones of kids who might be down to just two or three foods and were having to be fed by tube, he felt that many so-called normal kids were in effect resistant or extreme picky eaters because we've normalized it in our culture. We no longer really expect children to like vegetables. Part of what I found is that there's a view that children will just naturally outgrow these things, that somehow it doesn't really matter if you have a kid who doesn't eat anything but cornflakes because he'll just reach a certain age and then just develop a love of salad along with a mature political opinion and a deep voice. But it looks as if this isn't the case. This is, a, this is the lesson of bread and jam for Francis that you're overturning here. I love bread and jam for Francis, but it is. Um, for some people, you reach a point of thinking, I'm bored of this monotonous diet. I'm going to try what I see other people eating. And actually, the lesson of bread and jam for Francis is that she sees the other family members modeling how much they're enjoying eating things like spaghetti and meatballs. And she can't bear to be sitting there with her boring white bread and jam anymore. And I think as parents, we hugely underestimate the impact of the way that we eat ourselves. Nothing a parent says to a child about food is ever as powerful as the way that they themselves interact with food, which is why we shouldn't be talking about diets and guilt and so on and self-loathing in front of children, thinking it's not going to have an impact on how they eat. There are lots of studies confirming that. But coming back to the question of how you change, so we think there's some natural mechanism that you just get older and suddenly you like grown-up food. Not so. It seems it's very hard to pin down numbers because it's a hidden and secret shame, but it seems that there are large numbers of adult picky eaters who have never learned to like vegetables and who are often living with, um, it's almost like illiteracy. They will avoid situations where they might have to eat foods that make them uncomfortable, quite apart from the fact that it's so damaging to their health. One of the things that strikes me, and I think a lot of parents, when it comes to food, is that it's often about control, that this is when it when you're trying to get your children to eat, you realize at some point, ultimately, that they're in control, they, they can open their mouth, they can spit it out, they can even get themselves to throw up um, at will, and that it's really outside of the the parents' control in, in certain ways. How do you deal with that? Well, yeah, it is one of the... Children are powerless in so many ways, and one of the very few things that they have control over is the ability to refuse or accept food. I think it's also a big control thing for parents. I talk in the book about these terrible mistakes I made with my third child who was born with cleft palate. He was way pickier than my older ones had been. And around the age of 18 months, he just went down to a really limited repertoire of foods and it sent me slightly crazy and I started forcing food in his mouth. And it makes me shudder now to look back to think I would have, as an educated person who knew a lot about food, behave like that. 
But feeding is deeply emotional on both sides. It's this complicated symbiotic relationship where at that point I felt he was the one in control, but I look back and think, no, I was this powerful person bearing down on him, forcing a spoon in his mouth. And I think you can just lose sight of the bigger picture as a parent very easily because you're so desperate to see them fed and happy. I think all of us can look back and find some terrible thing we did food-wise, either uh, in our own childhood or with our children. Is there one thing that you learned that you sort of, is is the biggest mistake that we make that uh, you would want people to kind of figure out how to unlearn and to teach their children properly? I think the biggest one is just knowing that our likes and dislikes are not something fixed. So so often in families, we talk with this kind of fatalism. I mean, I've even done it just now by saying my third child is my fussy one. But we add these labels and we say, oh, you're a bit like your grandfather. He never liked fruit either, so you will never like it. And if we could just be more open generally to the thought that, well, someone might not like cheese now, but maybe they'll try it again in two or three years. And to just talk to our children in these terms about, well, not liking something now is not a life sentence keep trying it, to have a kind of openness and sense of adventure and fun about food rather than making it this dreadful duty that we all have to get through at the end of the day, which isn't much fun for anyone, parent or child. Well, you're having me reconsider my afternoon visit to the New York Times Book Review candy drawer. This is great. Thank you so much. Thank you. B. Wilson is the author of First Bite, How We Learn to Eat, which is reviewed this week in the book review by Jenny Rosenstrack. Greg Coles joins us now with Bestseller News. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. What's new? Not much? Uh, really not much. On the fiction side, there's only one new title. It is all the way at the top. Um, James Patterson. Who? <laughs> <laughs> has his ninth title to hit the hardcover fiction list this year on the adult side. He's also had kids bestsellers and ebooks and, you know, on and on. This continues his long-running Alex Cross series. Uh, the book is called Cross Justice, new at number one. Uh, And then on the nonfiction side, there are just two new titles. Um, Down at number 16, just barely sliding onto the list, the uh, classicist and historian Mary Beard uh, has a book called SPQR that is all about the civic life of ancient Rome. you got to love that this made the bestseller list, even if it only squeaked in at number 16. Yeah, it it had been bouncing around on the extended list for a couple of weeks, and so uh, now there it is. And and you do have to love it. Mary Beard, um, of of course, very well respected, um, but also finding a popular audience. And then at number nine, the um, singer and member of the Simon & Schuster family, Carly Simon, Uh, has a memoir called Boys in the Trees, not published by Simon & Schuster, interestingly. But tell us about the Simon & Schuster connection, because that is so interesting for us book people. Well, um, Carly Simon's father was Richard L. Simon, and he was one of the two founders of Simon & Schuster. So she grew up uh, in a very big publishing family um, with visits from authors and publishers and editors kind of constantly, um, both in New York and in Connecticut, where the family had a house. She talks in the book about being 11 years old at, at a dinner party uh, and a British publisher was visiting. 
And uh, she said that at 11, she still didn't really even know what a publisher was. She imagined this kind of medieval workshop with vats full of dyes and ink that people just dip paper in and books would kind of magically emerge. So not that far from the truth, actually. Yes, exactly. That's precisely how it works. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.